Well, good morning. Glad to have all y'all here today. Um, for those of y'all that don't know me, if, if it's your first time, I'm John. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I get the privilege of uh, preaching today, continuing in our series on what it means to be made in God's image. So if you would, bow your heads with me, um, and let's pray and just ask for the Lord's help in this time. Yeah. Um, Father, we come to you right now, and Lord, as we take time to sit and pray, we don't uh, just come as a formality. Right? So we don't come and pray to you right now in the obligatory way that we so often do before meals. It's just something that we have to do, God. We come to you because we desperately need your help, God. Your word is true. It speaks to us right where we are in the time and place that we live in, in the turmoil that we find ourselves in in this world, God. So it's applicable to our lives, but we live in a world and we live in a time and even on the inside, God, there's so many distractions. There's so many things that would uh, tempt us to disregard what's being said today. And I pray that that would not be the case. But as your word is preached, that we would be confident that um, it's your word and we would respond to it as if the God of heaven actually came down and spoke to us, Lord, with with joy and with the eager expectation to obey and enjoy the blessings that come from it, Father. So, uh, Lord, we just pray right now that above all else, you would uh, shine forth that, man, my concern would be about um, your greatness being made clear and compelling and not my own. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, for those of you all that have been with us, we're in the midst of a three-week series on the uh, Mago Day, what it means to be made in God's image. Last week, we talked through uh, really just this fact that if we know who created us and why we were created, it changes the way that we view ourselves. We live in a world where there's a bunch of folks that are striving after and pursuing a sense of dignity, and they think that dignity comes from the things that I do. So we have a world that's starting to work tirelessly just to prove that they're worth something. For There's many of you all that have been here in the church that I know, and through through the course of these year, uh, this past year, we've talked back and forth about how much the issue of depression is easy to just sink in on our lives. And when we think about us and who we are, it's so often that we start with what's wrong with us and think that we have to spend our time trying to fix that up. And, and last week we talked through the beauty of what we see in God's word is that long before we get to the deficiencies of mankind, God's word does not start with what's wrong with us. It starts with our dignity. It starts with what's right with us. God made us unique. God set us apart, and if we really grasp that, it changes the way that you and I do life. We don't live trying to work to gain dignity, but we live our lives in light of the dignity that God has already instilled in each and every one of us. And it's free, and it changes the way that you and I relate to God. But one thing that we have to be reminded of as well is that in the world that we live in, although the most important thing about our lives is how we relate to God, we'll run into a problem if we forget that we have to relate to other people. 
if life was just, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, if life was just about me and God, then things would be good because God knows that I'm flawed. God forgives me perfectly. And I think that we would get along. But what makes life hard is that we have to deal with other people who are just as flawed and messed up as we are. And so what takes place is this. The beauty is even at the beginning of the Bible, when God talks about us being created for community, he doesn't talk about what's wrong with it or how hard it is, right? That's what we think of. But when God created man and his wife, the very first time in the Bible that we see something is not good is when God looks down at a man in isolation. So more than imperfection, the concern of the Bible for mankind is isolation. God created man to get to know him fully. And then God created the rest of mankind so that we would really get to know God fully. Did you know that if it was just you and God, you would be at a disadvantage in getting to know God because you don't get to see the way that he responds to a world full of folks. God has always intended that we would get to know him through people. So everybody else that's been created in this world is meant, the reason why they exist is to enhance your relationship with God. That's an amazing truth, and it's a good truth, but here's the problem. Though everybody in the world has been created for the exact same reason, we don't treat people in the same way. Right? More fundamental than racial distinctions and kind of black and white, I think the world can be categorized from our standpoint into two groups of people, impressive and depressing. I think that's the way that you and I tend to look at this world. We see folks that are impressive. The Olympics is all about this, right? Putting the people that are most impressive on display and we're drawn to them. These impressive folks have Twitter Followers in the millions, stadiums are packed to see them and to praise them. There's this one story, this uh, uh, guy that I knew that was a part of the, the church that we all were a part of um, a few years ago. And Alex was a black belt, not just a black belt, but a junior Olympian black belt. So one day, me and him sit down and talk, and as he's uh, at work at the Cheesecake Factory, he sees a lady sitting at the table that he just served, and she's eyeing the door, clutches her purse, and he's like, she's getting ready to run off. And if she runs off and doesn't pay, then I don't get paid. So she runs out the door, so he goes out to chase her. As she runs, somebody comes up, snatches her purse, and runs off. So his thought is, if she doesn't have her purse and she doesn't pay, then I don't get paid. He chases him down. The guy's getting ready to cross the, the, the street, but there's a green light. Cars are starting to come. He makes this sharp turn, and all of his black beltness just kicks in, and 
So he turns around and gives this guy a roundhouse kick to the face. The guy falls down. Alex, in true superhero fashion, picks up the purse, calls the cops. The guy goes to jail. Lady has to pay her bill. All is well. That's impressive, right? Like that's somebody that you would want to be around. And in this world that we live in, there are people that are impressive and we're drawn to them. There are hope for acclamation or prestige, love. But then in the same vein, especially in a city like the one that we live in, not only do we see some of the most impressive specimens of humanity, but we see some of the most depressing. On any night, there's over 7,000 people that live in our city that are homeless. On your way to lunch today, many of you all, with cash in your pockets, will walk by somebody that asks for money, and you will either ignore them, maybe create a a little bit of more space, or just say, I really don't have any cash on me. There are people that are impressive that we're drawn to, and there are people that find themselves in the most depressing circumstances, and we do our best to distance ourselves from them. Both are people that have been created for the exact same purpose to enhance our relationship with God, and yet we have two completely different responses to them. Although those responses are instinctual, we do it without thinking. What they do is they give an accurate picture of what it is that you and I truly value what we love. And I think one thing that we love is convenience. One thing that you and I love is being made much of or finding ourselves in the presence of people that give something to us and not those that require something from us. And so here's where all of that breaks down, primarily for those of us in this room that would consider themselves Christians. The negligence that we extend towards people that find themselves in depressing circumstances can lead to disaster. Carelessness left unchecked is always going to lead to calamity. And I just want to show you a small picture of how that plays out. Uh, There's a quote uh, from this book that that I'm going to read to you all, and it just talks about the Rwandan Civil War, and it says this. The Rwandan... Civil War began or could be attributed to the church's failure to apply a biblical worldview, a kingdom perspective to all of life. For most Rwandan Christians, uh, Christianity was little more than a superficial privatized veneer on a secular lifestyle characterized by animistic values, and long-standing tribal hatred and warfare. What, what he's saying, for most Rwandans, Christianity was just a 
veneer, something they did on Sundays that really didn't apply to all of their lives, that really didn't apply to the way that they viewed folks that were hurt. And then it goes on and says this, the church was silent on critical life and death issues as the dignity and worth of each person made in the image of God. And as a result, tens of thousands were murdered and killed, and nobody really did anything. We find ourselves in a world that's constantly seems like it's at war. And one of the things that we have to be reminded as Christians is it's so easy for us to become apathetic. It's so easy for us to be involved right in the wake of names that are written in hashtags on Twitter. But it's so easy for us as time kind of moves on for our hearts to start to grow cold. And we don't want that to be the case. And that's why we're spending time trying to reaffirm the dignity of mankind to show this. The one truth that we're going to see throughout our text that I hope will shape our life is this. Our attention to people, both the impressive and the depressing, reveals our attitude towards their creator. Our attention to people shows what it is that you really think of God. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalms chapter 146, um, and we're going to spend the rest of our time there. Psalms 146, as you turn there, it comes at the end of the book of Psalms. There's five Psalms that are called the final Hallel. And what that is, is just kind of this last ditch, the final praise. All of these Psalms start and end the same way with this praise to God, uh, worshiping of God. And this Psalm is going to be focused on justice here in the world, but it's important to note justice doesn't start with our actions. Justice starts with our view of God. So he starts here, Psalms 146 verse 1. And two, and he says this, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. The very first thing that he does is he calls a group of people to worship. Praising God is something that's easily done when we find ourselves in turmoil or frustration. It's easy to cry out to God then. It's much harder to cry out to God when life is starting to go pretty smooth because we think that we have things covered. But he starts off this psalm, and what he wants us to see is, no, no, listen, the reason why we were created was to relate to God and to worship God. A preacher by the name of Thomas Watson said this, that the motion of our praise must be like the motion of our pulse which beats consistently as long as we live. If the only time that you call somebody to praise God or to think rightly of God is a rebuttal to a wrong way that they think of God, then you're missing out on what it really means to be human. We were created to constantly turn people's attention towards God. That's the reason why we live. Charles Spurgeon says this, I have no being apart from my God. Therefore, I won't attempt to enjoy my being any other way 
than by singing to his honor. Husbands, dads here in this room, how seriously do you take the fact that your family is going to be very, very quick to forget the good things that God has done? How seriously do you take the fact that part of being a human is that instinctively we worship. Everybody worships something. It's easy to forget to worship God, fathers, husbands, house. Seriously, do you take the fact that every day you have an opportunity to make sure that you're leading or pointing your family in the right direction? It doesn't take much. I had a professor in school that said one thing that he did when his kids were really, really small was after dinner, they would always have dessert. And every time that they had dessert, he ensured that he paired it with a devotion so that the kids would learn how sweet God's word was. And it wouldn't be something that they felt like was this chore, but this is something that we get to do to be reminded of the fact that we serve a good God that created us with dignity that we didn't have to to work for. If you have roommates or friends or anybody that you have the clout to start a conversation with, one of the best things that you can do is do this. Just call them to worship. Why? Why do we need to do this? It's easy for us to get. It's easy for us to forget because as sure as this psalm starts off with a call to worship, it calls us to watch out for a fatal attraction. It calls us to watch out for the way the people that we are naturally inclined to. Verses 3 and 4 says this, watch. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. He starts off saying, hey, there's certain people in this world that are influential, that you're drawn to. And he says, that is a fatal attraction. You want to worship God, but he's saying, withhold your praise and your trust from these folks. And there's two points that he makes. He says, don't do it, not just because it's sinful, but because it's stupid. Don't fall into idolatry. And then on the same vein, he says, and don't be an idiot. Verses three and four, we'll read these again. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation when his breath departs, He returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. One of the best ways that you can define what something is is by providing a negative example, right? So you tell folks, hey, I want you to go there. Nah, not there, but there. And so here's what he does. Worship God. Praise him. Well, all right, here's what I mean. Don't praise him. And here's what it means to put our trust in People, we rest our hope for well-being or security on somebody that's not God. All of us in our lives have people that are major stakeholders in our lives. Spouses, employers, 
Strangers that we don't know, but we're cared, but we're so consumed with how they perceive us. And the tendency is to spend all of our time trying to make sure that people that we're drawn to are drawn to us. Our tendency is to do all that we can to make sure the people that we know and respect have some type of knowledge and respect of us. Think in your own life. Who in your life, if they ignored you, would absolutely crush you? Whose words, if they expressed disappointment in something that you've done, would absolutely devastate you? Whose simple suggestions in your life turn into these absolute statements or demands or something that you have to do? Who is that? Those are the major stakeholders in your life. And the dangers that we can fall into when we see people that are made to point back to God is that we can have too high a view of them or too low a view of them. We can deify them, put them in the place of God, or we can dehumanize them. And this first point is don't deify people. Don't put your hope in them. Worship is this, sacrificially directing the best and the foremost of all that I have to somebody that I think can provide me what I want the the most. We get confused in in the U.S. where we live because we think that the God that we serve, right, we think the idol of our day is comfort. Everybody wants to be comfortable, and that couldn't be further from the truth. People, in order to get what they want, will willingly endure much discomfort to to really get what they want. So don't sell yourself short and just think, hey, you know, what I really want is comfort. No, 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 no. What you really want lies on the opposite side of the discomfort you you are willing to endure. If, uh, a few years ago, a rapper came to town and he had this concert called a Dollar in a Dream concert. And what would take place is it was $1 to get in. But what he would do is in the morning, he'd tweet the city that he was going to be in where he was going to be, and it was first come, first serve. And so what would take place was people would flock and they would wait in line and leave themselves subject to the elements with a dollar in their hand just so that they could get in and he would sign their dollar. People are willing to endure discomfort in order to get what they want, in order to be in the presence of somebody that's impressive and they're drawn to. And the question is for you, where in your life are you so willing to endure discomfort for somebody and it's a joy and a pleasure and something that you would brag and boast on that God doesn't get the same treatment. That's what the Bible refers to as idolatry. It's not you just bowing down in front of a statue. It's giving all that you should give to God to somebody else that's not God. 
It's the frustration that you get when you buy your kid an expensive toy and the toy is in a box. You take off the box and you bring out the toy and the kid is enamored with the box and you're saying, no, no, no. I didn't spend $80 for this box. This box just had inside what I was really trying to point you to. This is what takes place when you and I deify people or put them on a pedestal that only God should have. And it's not just that God is a stickler and he's jealous and he just just wants folks to praise him. It's not just for God's good that God does it. It's for our good as well. Right? Look here at verse 4. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. He says it's a fatal attraction, not just because it's sinful, but because it's stupid. He's saying, why would you build your hopes and dreams for the future on somebody whose future isn't guaranteed? Isaiah 2.22 says this. What is man? Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is his breath. For what account is he? Basically, man, the most impressive man or woman that you know at any given time is nothing more than a nose full of breath. Although we've been created with a great capacity to relate to God, regardless of how strong or impressive folks are, cut off the flow of their breath and not only do they die and leave, But all of their plans go. So when we put our hope for fulfillment, when we put our hope for love and admiration and affection and dignity on people, it's like us going to a contractor and saying, hey, I've got all these great plans for a home. And he's saying, well, where do you want me to lay this home? And you say, well, I want you to build this home, but I want you to set it up about three inches off of the ground. And what he's going to say is, I can't do it. And you'd say, why? Because he's like, that's not the way that things work. Air doesn't support or hold anything. It falls. It drops. We can have all of these plans, but they're just going to break. Did you know that in the world that we live in, nobody's plans fully come to fruition? That's one thing about being human and not God. Every one of us are going to leave this world with unfulfilled plans. That comes with the territory. And when you and I are drawn to people that are impressive, when you and I set our hopes for fulfillment on people that at any given time are nothing more than a nose full of breath, the only thing that we ensure is that we will be disappointed. 
raise your hand, right? And we're going to do this so that we all can see. Raise your hand if you know somebody that has met every one of your expectations. It doesn't happen. It doesn't work that way. Even if you have somebody that says from here on out, the reason why I live is to make you joyful. It only works for so long. And it does you no good if you outlive them. This is the hopelessness that comes from being drawn to people that are impressive. And so God says, hey, use all of your time to direct people to worship God, withhold it from this fatal attraction. And then what takes place is there are no other instructions here in this text. No other commands, nothing else for us to said for us to do. But what's next is in the same way that we're told to to watch out for a fatal attraction. Our task and our job right now is just to take a step back and to witness the father's attraction. Starting here with me in verse five, look at who God is drawn to. Verse five, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God, who made uh, heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Verses 5 through 7 starts off, and it says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. And then as it talks about God's power, it's going to use God one time, and then it's just going to throw on all of these feats that God has God made, God created, and all of this. One time we see God. And then we just see this list of of all the things that he's done. Notice what changes as it talks about the type of people that God's drawn to. Verse 7, starting at part B, it says this. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. What did you notice about what takes place here? The first part, when it talks about God's power, see his name once and then this long list of things that he does. When it talks about the people that God is drawn to, You see his name over and over and over because he doesn't want us to think that the list of these folks is just like creation, just a list of things that he did. But he personally attaches his name to each one of these oppressed people. You and I distance ourselves from folks that require stuff from us. God is drawn to them. There's this special preference that God has for people that are powerless. There's this special draw that he has. You know, when it starts off with verse 5, blessed he whose help is the God of Jacob. First of all, blessing and help 
come together. If you don't view yourself as somebody that's in need of help, you forfeit God's blessing. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. Those three words should cause great joy in all of us, especially for those of us that know the life of Jacob. Here's the life of Jacob. Here's one thing that he did. Probably the most disgusting passage in all of Scripture. Not uh, not disgusting in the sense like, you know, folks get killed and there's guts everywhere. But disgusting in the sense of, how could you do that? Genesis 34. Jacob has a daughter. His daughter gets raped. He knows who raped his daughter. His sons know who raped his daughter. Jacob does absolutely nothing. His sons go and seek vengeance on the people that raped his daughter and their sister. Jacob comes back and finds out. And do you know who he gets mad at? His sons. He said, look at what y'all did. Y'all are going to make me look bad in the eyes of them. And you step back and say, what? This is a guy that was charged to protect his daughter. And all in the name of being seen as worthy or acceptable in the eyes of somebody else. He sacrifices his daughter on the altar. This Jacob. And I think Psalms 146 starts off here so that all of us who have ever been accused of sacrificing our families on the altar of somebody else's approval would be able to know this is somebody like me. For any one of us that would have been accused for sacrificing our families on the altar of a boss's approval, sacrificing the relationships and well-being of people that we know and love and trust on the altar of the opinions of people that we don't know and couldn't care less uh, about us. For everybody that would feel like a failure, we would be reminded that our failure is not the end of the story. But for all those that need help like that, they're blessed because there's this God that's on their side. Is a blessing. Our failure is not final. Not only is God powerful, but he does have this preference towards people that need help. I may have overstated my point at the beginning when I said that we are naturally drawn to people that are impressive and distance ourselves from people that are depressing. That statement wasn't entirely true because, do you know, back in this day, widows, orphans, people that were uh, oppressed, there were people that were vying for their attention, but it was predators, people that were eager to exploit them. And that's the way that our world works. People with power... Predators are often drawn 
to the powerless, not to help them, but to exploit them. This past week, my wife and I were at a conference, and we learned that there's over 75% of women involved in prostitution in the sex trade here came out of foster care. Over 75% of women that have had their lives ruined found themselves in that place because they were defenseless and powerless. And people that had the means to help distanced themselves from them because they wanted to be around people that would give to them. And the only people that were drawn to them were people that were going to exploit them. And if we remember that we're hardwired for community, that God created us to be a part of a group, then what you find out is that if people are faced with a choice in between isolation or attention, even if it's the wrong kind, there is one that's preferable to the other. So as we sit back and are reminded of just the ways that we fail, the Bible calls us to draw our attention to the fact that there is a God who wasn't negligent in being drawn to people that really needed their help. There is a God that not only perceives the deep need of those that are that are in need, but he responds specifically to give people what it is that they need. This God is a champion of people that are powerless. That's what he does. That's what sets him apart from everybody else. And this is what lies. This is what lies as the very heart, at the very foundation of Christianity. Um, It's going to be here on the screen. So much so that in Luke chapter 4, David, I think I told you chapter 3. So um, in Luke 4, 16, Jesus gets on the scene and it says this. And he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. And he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He starts off and gives a restatement of what takes place in Isaiah, that the reason that he came was to help people that were desperately in need. And so for all of us, we may not tangibly have all of these things that were here in this list. We may not be in jail. We may have a mom and a dad We may not feel like sojourners and travelers. 
But there is something that all of us are enslaved to. There is something that we all come into this world with that puts us at a tremendous disadvantage. And that's what the Bible calls sin. That in being able to relate to God, here's the bad news. The bad news is that none of us have hearts that are pure and crisp and clean that want to choose God. The bad news is that left to ourselves, all of us, it's not like we'll choose God sometimes and then not choose God sometimes. All of us left to ourselves will only not choose God. And even if we feel guilty about what we did and said, I'm never going to do it again. You know and I know how empty those words are because we constantly find ourselves in a place where you do it again. And you ask yourself why. And you say, well, this time I'm not going to do it again. And year after year we make promises and statements to ourselves and we find ourselves in the, the same place feeling forced or compelled to do something that we feel like we don't want to do. Do you know what that is? Slavery. Slavery is being compelled to do something that you feel like you don't want to do, but you constantly find yourself doing that same thing. All of us, if we're honest with ourselves... We feel that on the inside. And the beautiful thing about the Bible is it doesn't soften that blow. It actually comes and tells us for all of us that think that we're, we're bad and we're messed up on the inside. The Bible doesn't soften that blow. What it does do is it tells us not only are you bad, but you're actually much worse than you think that you are. The good news is not that it comes along and says you're not as bad as you think. No, 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 no. The bad news is you're much worse than you think that you are. Here's the good news. The good news is that there is a God who has a preference towards people that know that they're in need and cry out to him for help. The good news of the gospel is that you are far worse than you ever thought that you could be. But you're far more loved than you ever hoped that you could be. That in the midst of us causing God and the people that are in our lives headache, heartache, God was not negligent towards us. But it was at this time, while we were in the depths of our sin, while we found ourselves constantly in environments like this, not being able to change. It was at that time that the Bible says that God sent his son, Jesus, to live in our place, to die for our sins, and to be raised from the dead, showing that God accepted his sacrifice as pure and true. So everybody that would identify with Jacob and say, yep, I'm like him, but would say, but I want to turn to his God, a, a God that could see the depths of what he did wrong and still come after him and rescue him. That, that's where salvation comes from. That's what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian is not, I do certain things. Being a Christian is, 
I admit the truth about myself and I turn and I plead for a savior to help me. And the freedom comes from us witnessing the father's attraction that God has this special preference towards people that are powerless. And if we would just turn from our sins and run to him, then not only will he save us from hell, which is a very, very good thing. It's a joyous thing, a great and a grand thing. But it'll change us in the here and now. It'll free us from feeling constrained to constantly do the very things that we know are only going to bring us frustration and hurt the people that are in our lives. But we actually get the power, like we talked about last week, to recover the dignity that we lost by our sin. Christianity is not about making people more than human. It's about trying to help them recover their humanity, the goal of why they live, to point people to God. And this is what takes place. And verse 10 ends off and says this, the Lord will reign forever. What a beauty that is. You put your hope for fulfillment on people. The only thing that you can be assured of is that they will die and you won't get what you hoped that you get. You put your joy and hope for fulfillment on God. The one thing that you can be assured of, it's, it's not just that he's going to live forever, but he's going to reign forever. He's in charge. He's going to make sure that things get done. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. All generations will get a chance to see the greatness of our God. Yeah, I feel sad now because when we talk about things like basketball or music, I have to hear about things, you know, how LeBron James is the greatest of the guys that are on the radio now are great. And I said, man, if you could have just grown up when I grew up, you would have known about the greatness of Jordan and Michael Jackson. But now what takes place is, yeah, he's not played as much. You're not going to see him as much. So all that you're left to is what you have right in front of you. The beauty about a God that doesn't die is that all generations have equal access to him. So the best things about who he is don't diminish. They don't wear away with time, but they get better and better and better, especially as the world that we live in seems like it gets worse and worse and worse and darker and darker and darker. The world that we live in is just a black cloth that shows the glory of the beauty of the diamonds of what God has done. Our attention to people reveals our attitude towards their creator. And as we come to a close, I want to read from you Proverbs chapter 14, 31. And then I want to draw your attention to a few ways that we can do this as a church. The very first one is this. Proverbs 14, 31 says this, whoever oppresses the poor dishonors his maker. And he who's generous with the needy uh, honors him. So what I want to say here is this. As Christians or people that find themselves in a world where 
issues of injustice are constantly being brought up to the forefront, the tendency can feel like, man, I've got to be involved in every single fight for justice, and I can feel pressured if I'm not as concerned about one thing than the next. And so here's what I want to say to give you a little bit of freedom, and it's this. All of our fights for justice are not going to look the same. However, what's the same about all Christians is that they constantly fight for justice. So what that means is what you do may not look the same as somebody else, but you do have the same call to look out for and to be drawn to the people that the rest of the world would uh, distance themselves from or be drawn to merely to uh, to exploit. Being created to be like God means this, that we ought to reflect God in the world. So do you know how God is a father to the fatherless? It's not just by providing folks with some arbitrary sense of God is close to me when I'm in my room and I'm playing music and reading. God is a father to the fatherless by impacting people who see his characteristics and say, that is attractive. I'm grateful that you did that to me, God. And now I want to reflect and to do that to somebody else. That the way that he's practically going to do that here in the West End is with guys like Wes and Marty and Mike, who in the course of the past few weeks have sat down and talked through, hey, one of the biggest issues that we have in our context is fatherlessness. So what does it look like for us? guys that are in various stages of life to say, hey, in the vicinity of this church, though it may be an issue everywhere else, it's it's not going to be the case here. And so they've sat down and they've put together this long plan of how they're going to canvas this whole place from door to door, find the kids that people want to distance themselves from and get them out of here, or that folks want to be drawn to just so that they can exploit. And they're saying, let's find them and let's invest and pour into them. That's how God is a father to the fatherless. He's not a father to the fatherless merely by us saying, Lord, I pray that you would be a father to to the fatherless. He's a father to the fatherless through people that pray for God to do that and have enough faith to know that if God has promised that he would do that, then that means that's meant to incite my action for me to work, not so that I can try to bring it, but because I know that God said that he's going to do it. And that's the way that God works. His promises don't free us from work. His promises are the fuel by which that we go and work. And on and on and on. So what we do as Christians and as people is that we proactively champion the needs of the needy. If you have no plan in place, you're likely not going to get very much done. It's more than us just sitting here and agreeing with this. Your agreement that man was really created with dignity and honor from God is shown 
not just in how you nod your head. It's shown in how you actually live your life. How are you planning for that? How are you right now rearranging your resources, sitting down with your spouse or your roommates and saying, hey, we have money. We're not rich, but we have some. We have more than we need. How can we rearrange what we need so that we live lives that are aimed and intent on giving to folks that are in need? And let's do it and let's go. If you don't have money, you don't have more than you need. Time. How am I planning my time so that I have margin to be able to actually reflect God in the world if I really believe that God placed me here to help people see him more clearly? How am I rearranging my time? And what I'm not trying to do up here is to give you an answer. What I am saying is go home and ask the question, how are you proactively caring for those that God cares for and reflecting him in the world? And the beauty is that if a room full of us with our various bents and burdens and hearts all just try to start on the very thing that God has placed on our heart. There's a lot that can get done in a lot of places. But we have to start. And we start not just with actions, but with a big and a grand view of God. Desmond Tutu says this, that neutrality in times of injustice is actually siding with the oppressor. Listen, we live in a world where there is constantly injustice. This is not heaven. One day, there won't be any need for us to fight for justice. But in this world that we live in, even if all of the problems that are prevalent right now in our world get solved, there will be more. So I just want you to know, this is our task. This is the reason why we're here. This is why for those of us that have been saved, that when God saved us, he didn't just snatch us out of the world, but he left us in the world to constantly show that he is a God that's drawn to people that desperately need help. And I pray that as we're reminded of the fact that we desperately need help from God and we have received that great help, that that would be our fuel to go out into the world and to reaffirm and seek to restore the dignity in everybody that we meet especially those that find themselves in the most depressing situations. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we're thankful that uh, even though life beats on as normal and it's easy for our hearts to grow cold, we can draw near to your word, which is like a fire that won't let our hearts grow cold. God. Um, I pray that you would surround us with people um, yeah, that can spark that, 
flame inside of our hearts and that we would be those that pursue purpose in this world uh, more than just the accumulation of things in our own joy. God, remind us um, that we have a limited amount of time here on this earth. Help us to use it well for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.